This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, if I haven't met you, welcome. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Today we are we're working our way through uh, the book of Colossians in the Bible. So today we're in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible... Uh, There's one under the seat in front of you. You can grab one and open to page uh, 572, and uh, we will read it together. It's great to have you with us today as you're turning there, uh, as you're finding your spot there. Let me just welcome you, especially if you're a guest, some of you are guests, maybe from out of town. It's wonderful to have you, especially on this holiday weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend. And as I was thinking about this, I told the first service that it's just a privilege to be able to uh, freely proclaim God's word today, freely sing what we want, uh, preach what we want. And uh, we, we have that privilege because others uh, gave their life that we could have that freedom. So even, oh, thank you. Um, so even, thanks, Matthew. So even as we, uh, even as we read the word of God today, it's, it's, um, it's worth pausing and saying, thank you, Lord, uh, for the freedom we enjoy and, uh, and remembering those who paid the price so that we could have that freedom today. Okay, we're going to look at um, verses 6 through, uh, I'm sorry, 16 through 23. But first of all, I want to just communicate the end of last week's message, because you've got to get that for this to make any sense. Last week, we studied and saw that Paul was calling the Colossians to stick with Jesus, because you can't improve on the gospel. So they're being tempted to add things to Jesus, Jesus plus something, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. And today we're going to see what those things were that were being hinted at in the previous passage, Jesus plus this. Um, And as we look at this today, I want to just review very quickly what we read in 13 through 15, verses 13 through 15 last week. It's going to be really quick. Here's what was last week, and then we'll jump into today. First of all, we learned, verse 13, that Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and that we're raised in him. So Paul was saying, you don't need anything else to be a Christian because you have everything in Jesus. He forgave you. Secondly, he took all of your sins. They were posted on the tree and he died as if they were posted on the tree. He bore them and he died in your place. He died for your crimes. That's what we talked about last week, your sins, my sins. And then we talked about verse 15. He rose from the dead to defeat the powers. He rose from the dead to defeat all demonic powers. So he's saying, why do you need anything else? Why are you looking? If, he's, if, if Jesus is the way of forgiveness, if Jesus is the way of new life, if Jesus has defeated all powers of darkness, why would you be looking, thinking, we need something else? And so that leads in to verse 16. This is God's word, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you for the freedom we experience in you. And we pray today that, Lord, we um, we might see Christ through this text. Guard us from the temptations to add to Jesus, to be Christians who find our identity in Jesus plus something we avoid or Jesus plus something we do. Help us to find our identity in you alone, we pray. I pray that you pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, on this kind of uh, lazy, hazy holiday weekend and give us alert hearts to respond to your truth here and set us free by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week, I was uh, participating in a little market research study. It was kind of a user testing study uh, for a mobile phone company. Uh, it was a, it's a company that many of you, everybody would know it. And many of you have this service, but because I saw their prototype website, I can't really say anything about it. I'm sorry to leave you in the dark, but, you know. So at any rate, uh, I, they put the website, I, I put the website on my phone, and then I'm being interviewed. And the goal is you kind of scroll through it, tell them what, what you like, what you don't like, what makes sense, and what doesn't make sense. And I could not get past the first couple of lines on the website before I'm giving Opinions, and I, I never really got past this. The whole test, there was plenty of good on the site, but the, but the, but this first thing just stood out to me because this is what it said. It said different, unlimited plans. Okay, so that's the, that's the whole thing's going to show me different unlimited plans. And so I said, um, okay, doesn't unlimited mean without limits? And they said, yeah, yeah, okay. Doesn't unlimited mean everything? Yes. So that how can you have different kinds of everything? You either have everything or you don't. It either has no limits or it has some limits. And then let's don't call it unlimited. But if it's everything, then why, how could there be different kinds of everything? And I just thought this is logically absurd. I couldn't get beyond it. We got to have a different language here. This is really, really bothering me uh, that it's different unlimited plans because it's unlimited or not. You get my point. And so as I began to look through, scroll through the site, and he's asking me questions and telling me various things, all of a sudden I move from totally skeptical to, oh, yeah, Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Maybe you need everything plus this over here. Or maybe you need a different kind of everything. And he started to explain it to me. And I started carefully, it wasn't even a sales pitch, but I started buying into the philosophy. I started thinking, yeah, I might only have the go unlimited, but I need now what's called the beyond unlimited because you can go past unlimited. I don't know if you knew that, but if you're at unlimited, man, you were like in the 1970s or something. Just send some smoke signals. If you're only unlimited, write a letter because I could go beyond unlimited. (laughs) Yes, when is this available? I need this beyond unlimited. And before you know it, I went through, I have everything I need in unlimited to all of a sudden I'm buying into their concept. Maybe there is a different kind of unlimited. That's exactly what's happening in Colossians. In this passage, they have Jesus and he covers it all. Paul is saying, Jesus is everything. You have grace. He has saved you by his grace. How are you going to add 
to Jesus. But in the text we just read, he's echoing what some of these false teachers are telling the people in the Colossian church. They're new believers, and they're kind of hearing this. Hey, did you know there's the Jesus plus religious holidays plan? Jesus is great, but what about the Sabbath? What about the festival? What about the new moon? They're adding stuff and offering different plans, we could say. Did you know there is the Jesus plus mystical experience plan? Wow. Scroll down to look at that one. Not scroll down. I'm talking about the Bible now, not the test. But Jesus plus mystical experience. Jesus plus extreme fasting plan. Jesus plus visions plan. That's in here. The Jesus plus visions. Jesus plus no meat and no alcohol plan. Jesus plus, uh, you know, all of these various things that they are, that they're talking about here. Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And after a while, for the Colossians, when you start hearing people who are evidently really committed believers and you start hearing about the things they're adding, you start thinking, well, maybe that, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe I do need that. Or they speak of these powerful mystical experiences and you say, oh, well, yeah, I just found out about Jesus. I believe in him, but maybe I do need that too in other, in, 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 uh, if I'm going to be godly. Maybe I need a different kind of, of unlimited. Maybe I need a different kind of grace. And that's the issue in the passage. But it is impossible to become more godly by adding anything to Jesus. You can't add to him and grow in godliness. David Garland in his commentary on Colossians uh, said that this passage and really the whole second chapter is highlighting Jesus's atonement, Christ's atonement over human attainment. And if I could borrow his words, I think the, the point of the passage we just read is this. He's urging the Colossians to remember that godliness is built on Christ's atonement not our attainment. Godliness is built. We mature in godliness by being connected to Jesus's atonement, his death and resurrection for us, not our attainment. Growing in godliness involves our participation. So I want to make that super clear. Growing in godliness does mean that we are to respond to the scripture, we're to repent of sin, we're to do what God tells us to do in the power of the spirit tethered to grace. But we are to act for sure. Uh, the, 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 as we grow, when we become a Christian, it's, it's the work of Christ alone that saves you. Only the work of Christ alone saves you. Can you become a Christian? Once you become a Christian and you start living a life and becoming more like what he's already declared you to be, Uh, in Christ, then that does involve our participation. But while God is at work in our growth and we are at work in our growth, it is Jesus and his work that is the foundation of it. We build upon what he's done. We're dependent on him. We trust in him. We count on him. We rely on him to grow in godliness. Uh, and that's why we speak about the gospel every week. The good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose on the third day, and now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We talk about this every Sunday. And that's our commitment to you. 
is that we will sing songs that will sing about the glory of what Christ has done for us. We will pray prayers that connect to what Jesus Christ has done for us. We will preach messages that, that see Christ and his grace in every text, Old Testament, New Testament as well, that we see the gospel in, in, in the scripture and that we're looking for that because that's the only way, that's the only thing worthy of our attention. He's the only one. And that's the only way we grow in grace. We don't grow by some other self-help program. So that's why we are committed to that. And he is concerned that these folks are going to get off task, that they're going to be confused. And so he goes after three, what I'm going to use the guy's words, Garland's words, three attainments. So three activities that could distract us from what Christ has done. He's going to talk about legalism. He's going to talk about mysticism. And he's going to talk about asceticism. We'll explain all those terms if they're new to you. Uh, Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Because godliness is not built on those things. Godliness is built on what Christ has done for us. The gospel's for Christians as well as unbelievers. You become a Christian through the gospel, but once you are a Christian, you grow by Um, by the grace of God, what Christ has done for us as well. So the first one is godliness isn't built on legalism. Uh, Look at verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you. Oh, this is really good because some of you are going to get set free this morning. I'm excited about that. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to to Christ. Legalism is seeking to be right with God based on our behavior rather than based on what Jesus did for us. It's trying to be accepted by God by what we do rather than basing our acceptance on what Christ has done for us. And so these false teachers are legalistic because here's what they're saying. If you, Jesus is great, but if you really want to be godly, If you really want to go on with him, you need to not eat that or not drink that. That's what it says. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Now, probably what's going on here, we don't know for sure. Here's what's happening in this passage, by the way. Let me just give a nested thought here. Here's what's happening in this passage. Have you ever been somewhere and someone's talking we don't have phones like that, do we, anymore? I just did that. That, that show, you are over 40 for sure, and I'm, I'm north of 50, but you're, way, you're probably over 40 if you were doing this for a phone, okay? It's this, right? So um, this is the modern one. Uh, so uh, if you've ever been somewhere and someone's talking on the phone, you're at a coffee shop and somebody's like me, talk, I talk really loudly. So somebody's talking really loudly, you can hear everything they're saying. You can't hear what's on the other side, but you can sort of guess Uh, what they're saying. If they're crying and saying, you're breaking up with me, you kind of know what's going on, right? So you can hear one side of the story and piece together what's going on. Try this sometime, even if you don't know what the other person's saying. And so here we have Paul saying, hey, don't believe this. Why? Because on the other end of the phone are the Colossians hearing all this stuff from false teachers. So all we're getting is Paul's side of the conversation. So we have to kind of piece together what's going on. Well, what must be going on is that they're hearing you can't eat or drink certain things. So they're probably hearing you need to obey the Jewish law. Because in the Jewish law in the Old Testament, you, you uh, can only eat certain things. You can only eat things that are clean. Now, that's not like our modern version, hashtag eat clean. It doesn't mean a plate of meat and vegetables, and we call that clean eating. What clean eating is for them is it's something that's not on the forbidden list. Like, for instance, pork uh, is a common one that we all think of. Um, and so 
when they weren't to eat, so they're, they're probably being told here, you need to eat like the Jewish law if you really want to follow Jesus. The problem is that Jesus fulfilled that and overturned that. In Mark 7, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, because what you eat, because it cannot go into your heart. It goes into your stomach and you eliminate it. That's what Jesus says. But it's what's in our heart that makes us unclean. It's all the, the sin, the anger, uh, sexual immorality, uh, greed, self-righteousness, all the stuff that's in our heart. That's what makes us unclean. It's not the food that we eat, Jesus says. And if that's not enough, Acts 10, Peter, who is a Jewish leader in the early church, a Jewish Christian, he gets a vision from God. It's in the Bible. And it's this sheet, com- sheet coming down with all these uh, unclean animals on it. So I don't know if he had a oink oink on there like a pig, if he had uh, different kinds of uh, shrimp, whatever kinds of things, the bottom feeders in the ocean, uh, these kind of things they couldn't eat. So, but they're all on there, and Jesus, uh, the vision tells Peter, kill and eat. You can eat all this. He says, oh, no, I would never. No, you can eat all this. So we're no longer under that. All the Old Testament eating regulations are fulfilled in Christ. And so these people are probably coming. It's great that you're serving Jesus, but you need to eat this way if you really want to be godly. And they're feeling like, hey, they're passing judgment on us. Man, we're not measuring up. We're not as radical for Christ, perhaps, as they are. Listen, I'm going to talk about this at the end of the message, but eating a certain way can easily become an area of pride because we can so easily place our identity in how we eat and subtly feel like we're better than somebody who eats a different way than we do. Even even we can feel like we eat more godly than they do or they're not very, oh man, see all those people in the fast food drive through. I would never do that, right? I'm, I'm saying I, I would, but I'm saying some might not. <laughs> uh, actually starting to think about it right now. But uh, so, but you know, you, we can look at, we could sort of judge someone who eats differently than us. Now this is for religious reasons. I'm just making the point we can judge others for any kind of thing like that. There's also drink restrictions here. We don't know what they are. Don't be judged according to what you drink. Well, the Old Testament did not forbid, this probably has to do with alcohol. The Old Testament did not forbid alcohol, forbids drunkenness, but it does not forbid drinking alcohol. So this is probably a rule they're adding. By the way, you can't eat all these foods and you have to abstain always. If you really want to follow Jesus, you have to abstain always from alcohol if you want to be really godly. Who knows? Maybe it was other things as well. They could have just been saying you can't eat meat at all. Uh, which would have been a rare thing for many of them anyway, but you can't eat, I don't know what, but they were, the point is they were saying, if you really want to be godly, you have to eat this way. They're also requiring religious festivals. This is clearly from the Old Testament. Don't let anybody judge you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That means we're no longer under uh, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And he's saying, you don't have to do all of those things because Jesus fulfilled them. All of those things pointed to Jesus. This is what he says. Those like new moon celebration, festivals, uh, religious festivals of various kinds in the Old Testament, the Sabbath, they are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. What he's saying is all of those were shadow that we could say foreshadowed, but they pointed to Jesus. It's kind of like this. If you saw a shadow on the ground and you followed the shadow, this is the Old Testament. You're following the shadow. You're doing what these rules are supposed to do, but they're pointing someone and it's somewhere and it's someone. And at some point you get there. Oh, this is the one casting the shadow. That's Jesus. See, Old Testament is the shadow that points to Christ. And he's saying, don't let these people judge you and say, you've got to do this stuff 
because Jesus fulfilled this. Don't feel pressure to live up to their standards. And the reason I say some of us need to hear that today is because we need to breathe in the fresh air of grace. Some of us have felt under the standards that someone else is living. Maybe they even told you they're not biblical requirements. They're not things that are avoiding sin. They're just the way they do things. And you felt judged by that. Now, people who, uh, people who put legalistic requirements on other people are responsible to God. Teachers who teach legalistically come under a stricter judgment, the Bible says. So that's very serious. But you know what? This isn't about what they're doing or about what somebody's teaching. This is about you, he says. You don't let them put that on you. In other words, you don't get under that. You pursue Jesus. You don't feel, don't live under condemnation because there is no condemnation in Jesus. They can do what they want to do. You let them do what they want to do. You look to Christ and don't let that weigh you down. Also, don't put the implicit here is don't put that on someone else. So if you have eating and drinking preferences, don't, don't require other people, don't look down upon other people because they don't do what you do. And, and that's legalism. And then there's anti-legalism legalism. Do you know about this? Anti-legalism legalism is when I get all up and self-righteous about somebody else's self-righteousness. You look at somebody else, you go, they're legalistic, and then I would never be like that, and that is so sinful, and then you're judging them, then you're more self-righteous than they. So that's anti-legalism legalism. Everybody, don't go in the ditch of legalism. Don't go in the ditch of anti-legalism legalism. Stay on the road with Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That's what he's guarding them against. But here's the problem. We, we see other people's stuff. We put our rules on them, and we judge them, and we think about them, and we don't even see that that's what we're doing. We're blind to it. We're blind to it. I had a professor in seminary who was a, uh, a Dutch Calvinist. There's several Dutch Reformed denominations, and he was in one of those. And he would tell the story about how we could judge other people for kind of like what we believe you're supposed to do, and they're not doing it. So he tells the story about uh, being in this Dutch Reformed church, and uh, he says at the end of the service, all the elders, meaning not just the pastors, but the older men in the church, would all gather on the front porch. And uh, he said they, w- they would look across the street at the Baptist church. We see as Dutch Calvinists, they, had a, uh, they, they believed in, in uh, holding to uh, the moral law, obviously, the Ten Commandments. And they believed that that required Sabbath observance, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Now, they didn't honor it Saturday, but on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so they took that seriously as Dutch Calvinists. And he said they would not work or anything on Sunday, but also the fourth commandment says, not only are you not supposed to work, you're not supposed to cause other people to work. So your animals get a break, your children get a break, uh, whoever's employed by you gets a break. So you don't cause other people to work. So if you eat at a restaurant, you're causing someone else to work. That was their view. So you're not allowed to eat at a restaurant on Sunday because of the Lord's day. So he said they would sit out in front of the church. The elders would be there, look across the way and here come the Baptists and the Baptists would get in their car, drive just down the street, pull right into the restaurant. Another Baptist car, they'd be pulling right into the restaurant and eating. And I grew up Baptist. So I can tell you that was a buffet they were going to for sure. And, um, I'm still a Baptist at heart. So I'm not taking shot at anybody. Uh, so they'd go down there and they, they would look at them and go, that is shameful. They claim to be Christians. It's the Lord day, Lord's day, and they are blatantly defying God and his Sabbath law. And I cannot believe they're doing that. 
He said, from the Baptist perspective, the Baptists are getting in their car, they're pulling out, and there's the church with all the old Dutch guys out front, the old Dutchmen on the front, and there they are. They're Dutch. And so after church, they're smoking their cigars out front. And the Baptists are going, I can't, that is shameful at the house of the Lord smoking. How could they possibly be Christians in, in front of God and everybody smoking a cigar at the house of the Lord? This is a blatant disregard for the holiness of God. And he makes a point that nobody could see that they're judging the other and the other person's judging them at the same time. And that's how it works oftentimes in the church. So let him or her who has ears to hear, hear what the spirit says to us in that. Let's be, let's hold our preferences loosely and let's hold on to Jesus tightly. When there's areas of freedom or different points of view, we need to extend that rather than put our requirement on someone else. So godliness isn't built on legalism. Secondly, godliness isn't built on mysticism. Uh, Verse 18 and 19, let no one disqualify you. Boy, that's stronger than past judgment. Let them not DQ you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Okay, so here he's saying, uh, don't let them judge you because you haven't had some mystical experience that they have. So it's hard to put a label on these false teachers. Like I can't tell you one title. Oh, they're like this and give you a term that we could all relate with. It's an eclectic group of beliefs. So they're legalistic. They probably practice some of the Jewish law. But then they also claim you have to have mystical visions, which is more pagan. So they're kind of like partially emphasizing Jewish law, partially emphasizing the pagan practice that they would have come out of. And uh, he says uh, that, look, they are giving themselves to asceticism. We'll look at that in just a minute. But here the word asceticism, it's used later. But here the word has to do with humility. And that's why the NIV, but not a good humility. That's why the NIV translates it false humility. So don't let them disqualify you insisting on their false humility. What does this mean? Why does it say asceticism? Because they're restricting themselves. They are doing harsh things, maybe to their bodies, but they're doing harsh things to themselves to appear humble. It's like when Jesus said, if you're going to fast, don't go out and let everybody know you're fasting because you're like, oh, why do I have no energy? Why? Why are you tired? Oh, just fasting for the Lord. Don't do that. That's false humility. You're out displaying. So they're probably doing that kinds of stuff. And they probably believe that this restricting themselves leads to visions because it says that they, they were having worship of angels and going on in detail about their visions. So the worship of angels, they probably are not saying there is no Jesus. We just believe in angels because the Colossians wouldn't have bought that. They're probably rather calling on angels. They're probably calling on spirits, calling into the spirit world, which is their background in paganism, calling into the spirit world and asking angels to protect them, asking angels to give them revenge, maybe by harming someone else. Maybe they're talking to angels as intermediaries. Some, some scholars think they're probably talking to angels as intermediaries to get to Jesus. So if you want to get to Jesus, if you don't have direct access, you've got to go through an angel. So you pray to the angel and deliver my prayer to Jesus or something, something. It could be something like that. But they're probably calling on them, looking to them, very aware of them, and then having these kinds of visions, um, puffed up without reason by a sensuous 
minds. So they're having, uh, they're having these sort of visions of some sort, and then they're talking about the visions. They're going on and on about the visions. Somebody asked me after the first service when I said, you know, you don't grow in godliness through mysticism. They were saying, do you not believe in spiritual gifts? I was saying, no, no. Let me clear that up. I do believe in spiritual gifts. The difference is that a spiritual gift must be evaluated by the scripture. And the worship of angels is nowhere in the scripture. And secondly, it's not the foundation. You can be a Christian and grow in godliness without having any kind of mystical spiritual gifts. It's not required to grow in godliness. But they're saying you're disqualified if you don't have them. So they're like saying it's Jesus, and if you don't have the mystical experience of a vision of angels or whatever else, then you're disqualified. You don't even really know Jesus. That's the issue. That's the issue. So I do believe in spiritual experiences, but not in the way they are talking about here. Um, Listen, it can be intimidating. I get why Paul's saying this. It can be intimidating to be around hyper-spiritual people. If you've ever been around somebody who's having all kinds of, they're always talking about this spiritual experience. I had this vision. I had this word. I had, uh, God told me this and that and this and that, and not scriptures, but God told me this and that and that. And I just was sensing this. And then I saw that. And then I had a vision this. And last night I had this prophetic dream. And the night before I had that prophetic dream. And they're having all of these experiences and they're talking about them like they're just normal going on and on. And you're going, wow, I don't have all those. You, You can very subtly feel, well, maybe I'm not oh, I just believe the gospel and the scripture, and maybe that's not sufficient. That's why he's saying don't allow them to disqualify you because they're puffed up with a sensuous mind. They are not growing in godliness, ultimately, is what he says. Don't be disqualified. Don't feel less spiritual, less godly, because you have less spiritual experience than someone else. You aren't qualified by fanciful experiences. You're qualified by Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're qualified. I believe in spiritual gifts, I believe in spiritual experiences, but that's not the basis of my salvation, and that's not the basis of my godliness. Our godliness and our salvation is based on what did Jesus do? Are we growing in him? Are we relying on him? Are we looking to him? Are we looking for visions? Are we looking to Christ? Are we looking to the scripture? This is the issue. He qualifies you, so don't feel less holy because you aren't keeping certain laws that people say you have to that the Bible doesn't. That's the first section. And don't feel less holy because you're not having some spiritual experience, which in this case may not even be biblical, but don't don't, uh, feel less holy because of that. And yet we can sort of feel that way sometimes by others who seem like, wow, they've got all these rules they do, and I don't. Kind of like a lazy slob. And while they have all these experiences, I'm like, am I spiritually dead? We can feel that way. And he says, no, you pursue Christ. We grow through connecting with Jesus. That's what he says. Look at verse 19. These people have a sensuous mind. They're having a going on about these visions, he says. Verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God, it says. That's what I'm trying to talk about today. He's saying, this is a growth that is from God. You're connected to the head, Christ. That means you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you. You are going to his word and listening to his word. You are celebrating and meditating on the grace that is yours. And then any obedience that you give to God, it's tethered to that. It's based on that. You obey because you're already accepted in Christ. You don't obey in order to get accepted. Huge point. You don't obey so God will accept you. You obey because he's already accepted you in Christ. That's obedience in Christ. That's being connected to the head. That's growth that comes from godliness. That's what he's talking about in this passage. And not only that. 
But likely the visions were probably individualistic. It doesn't say that, but it's probably was, I would think, frequently they were individualistic spiritual experiences. He says, if you want the growth that comes from God, verse 19, I'm quoting him exactly. If you want to grow with the growth that is from God, you have to be knit together with the joints and ligaments and nourished with the whole body, he says. So he says, if you really want to grow in the Lord, you've got to be connected to the whole people of God, not just these private spiritual experiences, but connected to the people of God. He's saying, stick with Jesus, stick with your Bible, go down to the church in Colossae, gather with the other people and grow together in the Lord. That's real growth. Not going on and on about this spiritual experience you had. Do you see the difference? He's just rooting them in the basics. I think it's so powerful. Third, he says godliness. So it's not built on legalism. It's not built on mysticism. And last, it's not built on asceticism. Now, look at verse 20. If with Christ, this is, this, this section, these three verses blow my mind. Uh, it says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not ch- touch, according to human precepts and teachings. Okay, last week we saw the elemental spirits of the world are demonic, dark powers, demonic powers. So he's saying, you've been raised with Jesus and given power over the demonic world because you're in Christ. Christ defeats evil powers. You're in Christ. You're not subject to them is what he's saying here. You don't, you don't have to be under the spell. You don't have to be under the power of demons as a Christian, he's saying. So why would you obey their regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do, do not uh, eat, uh, handle. That blows my mind. Because when we think of evil powers, most of us think of something like dark, occultic rituals. That is dark powers. Or we think of maybe someone who is, uh, you know, just bound with some overwhelming, a a powerful power that afflicts them. Like they're they're addicted perhaps to something or they're trapped in something and they just cannot move. They just... They're, they're, it seems like their will is bound. And you say, man, there's, maybe that, that seems demonic, like they're just bound up. Or we think of something really evil. You hear a story, somebody murders, somebody rapes. You go, man, that is evil. I mean, a person's responsible, uh, but that's demonic that that kind of thing happens. In this passage, he's saying, you've died to the spirits of the world. What are the dark spirits doing? They're not animating occult practices. They're animating rule-keeping. That's why this blows my mind. The demonic powers are, are leading them to say, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. Um, what is that about? Well, we've already talked the tasting. They may be saying to, to, to grow in God, you have to obey religious practices that Jesus said you're freed from. And so if you're doing things, creating your own, what it says, he goes on to say a self-made religion. If you're creating your own rules, that's wrong. That's evil because you're not trusting Christ, you're trusting in yourself, your rules. Um, But then he also says, do not handle, or he says, do not touch. What is that about? I don't know. Uh, I read a lot about this. Scholars, Scholars sort of surmise that what it's being talked about there is something in there is probably uh, abstinence from sex. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that sex is a gift from God to be experienced in marriage. Uh, But when you read the New Testament, you find people coming along and saying, if you really want to be godly, you even abstain in marriage. We saw that in Corinthians when we studied that last year. And so perhaps do not touch has to do with that. 
even though you're married, abstain. If you're really on fire for the Lord, you really want to please the Lord. You will take what he said as a gift and you'll deny it. That's what they're saying. And he's saying, when you take the gifts of God, regardless of what they are, and forbid people to experience, whether it's eating or sexual intimacy in marriage or something else, when you call people, you cannot experience the gifts that God has given. You have to do these rules. That's demonic because that is pulling people away from Christ into a self-made religion and restricting them from what God has freely given them. Paul calls it, what does he say? Precepts and verse 22, they are human precepts and teachings. He goes on and he calls it asceticism. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom, verse 23, uh, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity, severity to the body. So they are treating themselves severely, saying, I'm going to restrict, I'm going to go without, I'm going to not take part in things that I could, I'm not going to receive things that God has given me a gift, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to totally restrict myself in all these kind of things. And he says, that's asceticism. Here's a good definition of asceticism. I don't know if you've heard that word, but here's a good definition of asceticism. Um, Sam Storms, we have a book by him on Colossians out in the lobby there uh, by the coffee. He said, asceticism is the belief that if you add up a number of, of physical negatives, you will get a spiritual positive. If you add up a number, enough physical negatives, deny, 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 finally you get a spiritual positive. Of mere avoidance becomes the pathway to holiness. So here's the trick. And like my phone illustration, where I started going, yeah, that's pretty good. I want to be on the beyond limited plan. Even I don't believe such a thing can exist without that language. But um, so the same thing is here that there, these people probably look very religious. Wow. They are going on extreme fasts of food, drink, I don't know, water, sex, uh, all kinds of stuff. They're extreme severity to their bodies. Maybe when they sin, they're cutting themselves or doing something to their body. I don't know. But they are, they are severe. Man, they love the Lord. I'm not that committed. Paul says, don't let them put you under legalism. Do not obey their regulations because they're not, they're not what God requires of you. And they're having all these mystical experiences. Man, who am I to say? That guy, I don't know. I'm just a new Christian in Colossae. That guy had an angel vision and the angel told him this, that, and the other. And there's all these secrets I don't even know about. And don't let them disqualify you. You have Jesus You have the unlimited plan. You have everything you need, everything you need. And here's the funny thing about all that severe restrictions and visions. Look at verse 23. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're saying you want to be godly, then restrict yourself from all this kind of stuff. Paul says it does no good. You will not be more godly if you follow their plan. It it has the appearance of wisdom, but it does not. So what's the big warning here that we could take away? I think the big warning is beware of do-it-yourself religion. What he calls self, uh, verse 23, self-made religion. When you think of godliness, what's the first thing that comes into your mind or holiness? If you think 
a bunch of stuff that I am not supposed to do, if that's the first and primary thought, which now that I've talked about it 40 minutes, you probably wouldn't go there. But if I'd asked you at the beginning of the sermon, what, is, what do you think about when you think of godliness? If your first thought is certain rules or certain experiences, then you may be leaning towards what Paul calls here a self-made religion. If your conception has nothing to do with Jesus, If it's not, when I think of holiness, first of all, I think I'm not and he is. And I think he died for my sins and rose and I believe in him and he declared me righteous. So when I think of holiness, I first of all think of what Jesus did for me and I want to build my life on that. That does require me to repent of sins. That does require me to obey uh, scriptures that uh, that, that are in the Bible. Yes. But the foundation is what Jesus has done for me. Here's the problem with do-it-yourself religion. I'm at the center center. I'm at the center. I'm the center at the center, I guess we could say, right? I'm at the center. That's what he says. They are passing judgment on their food and drink laws. Verse 16, who came up with those? Jesus didn't say you have to do those as a Christian in the New Testament. They're saying, you've got to have all these visions. Paul says, don't let them disqualify you. They're saying, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They're saying, you've got to be severe with your body. If you want to follow Jesus, that that's all self at the center. Because the only thing that happens when you have a self-made religion like that is you don't live up to your own rules and you live with condemnation and discouragement. Or you think you live up to those rules and then you're proud and you're putting it on others and judging other people who don't. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. It's like they're saying, we believe that salvation's by grace, but my identity is really in Jesus and how I eat. My identity is really in Jesus and keeping a religious Sabbath day or festival of some sort. My identity is really in Jesus and living a harsh, ascetic life, restricting myself. That's what my identity is. And when you go into identity like that, that is the problem where we've gone Jesus plus this other thing. It's a subtle thing. This week in our pastor's meeting, I just threw this out to the guys. I said, hey, look at this phrase. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These were laws that are not God's laws that were just people were embracing in the Colossian church or being told to embrace, and they became part of who I am. Very important. What do you think those kinds of things are in our lives, in our church life, in the evangelical world life? Boy, that was a lively discussion we came out with. I was taking notes, just quite a list of things that could fit in there. I'm going to mention a few. Just a few of the kind of things that I think can do this for us, because most of us probably, it's not vision of angels and no pork. Probably, it could be, but probably not for most of us in the room. Our context may be different than Colossians, but I believe that it's very easy in this culture, probably not a generation ago, but a generation now, I think it's very easy to take our identity, our Christian identity, and how we eat and drink. Just what it says in verse 16, I think it's super relevant to us today. I really do. Our identity is in Jesus. And what can sometimes come in this culture that we can be tempted by is my identity is in Jesus and super healthy eating at the same time. It may be very wise to be a super healthy eater. It probably is. Um, uh, there can be good, that could be a good stewardship principle that we should, uh, that we should uh, seek to be aware of and honor. But it's very different to say, very different to say, I want to be a good steward, and this is like who I am. I think about this a lot. I, I 
I, it, it's just, it defines me. And so why I would not say perhaps, hey, there's no law against pork. I've got some new laws for you. I got a law against sugar. Uh, I got a, uh, I got a law against carbs. I got a law against GMOs. I got a whole different set of laws of how I don't feel good about me and the Lord if I eat that. Is there a Bible verse that says you can't eat a carb? Well, no, but I don't feel good if that's who I am in Christ. And how do you know if that's your identity? Well, I would say you know that's your identity if you're telling others about it. (laughs) That's your identity. It shows up in social media. It shows up in all my conversations. It shows up whenever I'm with them. It's always about what are and everybody, nobody else. Don't let them put that on you. I always feel judged when, when I'm around you. So it's like showing up at the community. Uh, tomorrow, the community group's having a Memorial Day party, and they're grilling fatty meats and celebrating. And you share, oh, no, I can't eat any of that. I'm on a cleanse. I, that's fine to do a cleanse, but why do you have to tell us that? I mean, how do we respond to that? Bathroom's down the hall and to the right? I mean, what, what, what do we say to that? <laughs> oh, your whole family's on a cleanse. Well, we have an upstairs bathroom as well. I don't know. How, how, do, we, how do we deal with that? When I feel like you, I want you to know this about me, this is who I am. Then it's like, wow, that's really my identity. Why do I have to always, why does that always have to drop in? Why does it just subtly always come out? Well, I don't need that. I don't need that. Yeah, yeah, I, Why does it always come in? Because for some of us, it's an issue of identity. Drinking can as well. I I think, I was thinking about this. I think in our church, and there's a lot of newer folks that maybe I don't know as well, but historically in our church, I don't think abstinence from alcohol is a primary issue like you'd be talking about here. I don't think most of the people in our church are saying it's a sin under all circumstances to drink. There's people who choose not to drink and are teetotalers, and that's totally fine. But I don't think it's a, we got a big issue with everybody saying you can't drink, like maybe, maybe what's happening here. If you really want to be godly, it's Jesus plus no alcohol. I, I think we have the opposite. In, in our church culture, we have a lot of, um, not a lot. We have some, because they've told me, uh, recovering Baptists and Pentecostals who grew up being told that they could not drink. And then about a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, they found out from their conviction of the scripture, they could and now that's what they're all about. And so now it's Instagram hashtag craft beer. I can do this and I'm going to tell everybody about it and I'm going to always do it. And I can't even get together in a social context unless we have some alcohol uh, because that's just, and it becomes like my freedom of alcohol. That's like who I am now. Guess what? It's, it, you can be free not to drink as well. Uh, and you can be free not to tell everybody about it all the time <laughs> as well. And you can enjoy this privately or with your family or your friends without, when it becomes something I've got to just get out there all the time. And some people who grew up in, uh, not hyper, conservative or fundamentalist environments are told they couldn't drink and then they find out they can. And they want to celebrate this like it's some big deal. Whereas all the world was drinking all along. You found out about that five years ago. They're not impressed that you offered them a beer. They've been drinking it since like middle school. So the fact you offered them a beer at age 30 because you found out at 25 you could, that's, like, that's not like the evangelistic silver bullet. They were already doing That was a bad pun, wasn't it? The silver bullet. But uh, that was... That was not impressive. 
That's our identity for some of us. There's a list. I'm going to go through really quickly because I'm out of time. I'm going to go through a really list and just see. This can have entertainment. Well, I don't listen to that. I don't watch that. We should make decisions about what we listen to and what we watch. But that can be our identity. I don't do all that. What's my identity? I don't have cable. And that's going to probably come up in a number of conversations. Well, I don't have cable. Well, why did I have to tell everybody that if that's the case? Because I don't watch all that stuff, you heathen. But uh, it's very subtle. What do I have to let you know about me? What do I have to put out there? Education. We can put our identity in how we educate our children. There's some of us, our education can be, I'm a homeschooler, and I'm committed to that. Our, Our identity can be, I'm a Christian schooler. Our identity can be, I'm a public schooler. Any of those. And there can be reasons, good reasons for all three of those. That's like who I am. I'm Jesus. We follow Jesus and we educate this way. Oh, really? So they're like in the same sentence? Godliness is not based on Jesus and how we educate. Godliness is Jesus and I'm following him. And as I follow him, we may make one of those three choices. And maybe there's more choices, but one of those three. Based on our conviction following him. And we're not going to tell everybody about it all the time and advertise it. And this is who we are. And this is in, you're going to feel guilty if you don't do what we do. Politics. Man, Jesus plus conservative politics. Jesus plus progressive politics. Our church has become more uh, diverse in a lot of ways, but politically over the last few years. I used to have to say, just rail on Jesus and conservative politics. But now it's great. I get to rail on Jesus and progressive politics because we have people with different points of view. Uh, there's millennials. Um, not that they're all, all progressive, but you know what I'm saying. That's wonderful. I love that, that we can have differences. But it's not, the, the solas of the scripture aren't Christ alone. I'm saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, and I'm in the Republican Party alone. That's not one of them. And if you think, how could that person be a Christian and identify with that political party? How could they be a Christian and be a Republican? How could they be a Christian and be a Democrat? If that question resonates with you, then you may have Jesus plus something. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in matters of political choice. We should, our politics should be, a, uh, should be uh, informed by scriptural understanding for sure as Christians, but people are in different places. People emphasize different issues that are in the Bible. That's a tricky one. He talks about religious holidays in here. I love that one. You know, there's the Sabbath, there's the new moon and all that. We can do the same thing. I'm a Christian and here's how we do holidays. We don't do that at Christmas. We do this. We don't do that. That no way. Easter, we do this. We don't do that. I'm a Christian. So at Christmas time, I let everybody know I'm a Christian. And this is the kind of thing we do as a real Christian at Christmas. Other people do secular traditions. That's fine. But we are, we are Christian and do we do Christmas? So we are Christian. We do Easter this way. We don't do Halloween, Reformation Day. Reformation Day. We don't do Halloween. What's so interesting about that is that there's other holidays we will embrace without any question. We'll celebrate the 4th of July, declaring our independence. And we will be grateful, as I said earlier, we'll be grateful for the independence that we have and and the freedoms that we enjoy. But man, that so subtly becomes, I'm really grateful and we're better. 
than other nations. We have more than 20 nations represented in our church. And if we often, I'm an American, grew up in the U.S. So as an American, I often don't see nationalism, which is idolatry. I often don't see that. But you take someone from another country who's grateful for their nation as well, and it becomes very clear to them. I can't see it, but they can see that. So it's so funny about the holiday thing. We'll do civil religion, and we will, at times, there's a difference. We should be grateful. Patriotism's not bad. Patriotism's good. Nationalism, national idolatry, we're better than everybody else. We're God's gift. We're superior in every area. That's wrong. And we can celebrate certain things and do that all day long and never think anything about it and judge that person over there that did trick-or-treating. That is so. Judge that person over there that did Santa Claus. That is demonic Santa Claus. I'm worshiping on 4th of July. We just have to be very careful about these kinds of things. We can, we can, we can judge on the, holiday, the whole holidays like they're talking about. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? How we dress, hypermodesty, how we spend our money. Always being in debt is always under all circumstances, no questions asked, always 100% sin in every situation. How we view sex, we can be prudish about sex in marriage. Man, you can split a church by just bringing up what I'm going to say right now. You can split a church over how do you view medical treatment. So we've got medical Christian agnostics who say I'm 100% alternative, I don't trust anything over here. And then you've got, you've got medical idolaters. Oh, I would never do everything else. You all people you like are foolish. You don't know. It's only, only this way of doing things. And there's no room for any movement. That, that's, that, that is, you have to do it my way. Where does the Bible like require, where does the Bible demand penicillin or essential oils? I'm looking for that verse. Where does it require that to know Jesus? I, I don't, I mean, I don't see the verse on that one. I've got an opinion on that, but I can't put that on you. Christians on the right, no, this is the right. Christians on the right want to emphasize gun rights, like Jesus gave those to them. And Christians on the left want to say, if we don't address global warming, that's like the 11th commandment of the 10, address global warming. And so they have different values, and you've got to do this politically. You've got to see, let no one judge you by their politics. Follow Jesus and make decisions in line with biblical values. And here's the thing. Oh, I don't have time for this. If you really look at biblical values, the life of Jesus, you're going to find values on the left and on the right. You're going to find them both places. The best place, just join me. I'm in the center, and then you can look to the right, and you can look to the left, and you can judge everybody. So just uh, there's plenty of room for you right here. Oh, man. Well, so how do we grow in godliness if it's not legalism and it's not mysticism and it's not asceticism? You've got to come back next week because chapter 3, that's what he talks about. Here's how we do it. It's the gospel. It's setting our mind on things above, on Jesus Christ. I hope the list was sufficiently offensive to everybody because we all, I wasn't trying to pick on anybody. We all have our issue. Wait a minute. He's not going to talk about that, is he? We all have our issue that it's Jesus and that. And where that stings, let's repent and let's say, Lord, it's you alone. I believe there's some reasons for this. The things I mentioned, there's good biblical reasons for most of what I said on the list. 
but we want to be building on Jesus. So next week we'll look at this. In the meantime, read this chapter. Read Colossians and understand the grace that's there. If you, we have a book called The Gospel. It's a green book. I think it's out here at our Welcome Center over here. It talks about the gospel. Believing the gospel builds a gospel culture. We want a gospel culture which says we're building on Christ and we're going to have some differences in some different areas. But we're going to focus on Christ. And wouldn't it be great that medical and alternative could both be at the feet of Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if Republican and Democrat could both be at the feet of Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if all ages, young and old, could be at the feet of Jesus? Black and white could be at the feet of Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if people with different points of view, healthy eater and fast food guy, both at the feet of Jesus, worshiping together, helping one another, growing, learning from one another, but saying we are about Jesus and not some preference over here that we're going to hold up and make that our identity. I think that's what's going on in this passage. May God help us. Next week we'll come and we'll see how we, how we do grow in Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.